2: If you had to, like, sum up the mood inside of Twitter right now, how would you describe it?
1: It's pretty ugly in terms of the way that the employees are reacting to this.
2: Journalist Alex Kantrowitz writes the newsletter Big Technology, and he hosts the podcast with the same name. So he's been following every twist and turn in the saga of Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter and his very public change of heart. That includes the emotional roller coaster Twitter's 7,000 employees have been on.
1: They feel like they've been left out to dry uh, by their CEO, who has now pursued this deal to somebody who doesn't want to buy the company and has promised uh, big changes inside the company, indicated layoffs are coming, um, disparaged their work. And up until this week, the company really hasn't said much in their defense.
2: Now, following Musk's announcement that he does not want to buy Twitter, the company has sued to try to make the deal go through, or at least cushion this spectacular blow-up with a lot of zeros. It's really hard to know right now where this thing is going, other than to the Court of Chancery in Delaware. Alex says there are a few possibilities.
1: So the first is that Elon does buy the company for a lot of money that he doesn't want to spend, and then either pawns it off somewhere else or implements his vision. There is another outcome where um Elon does settle with the company. And you know, let's say they get five billion dollars from him. That's a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime cash infusion to Twitter that will make all their jobs feel, you know, pretty stable for a long time and give them the resources to pursue things that they probably couldn't have in their wildest dreams, given the way that Twitter had been functioning up until that point. So <laughs> it's kind of this very interesting limbo. Um, and then I guess the last thing is that like the court in Delaware could just rule that um, this deal doesn't need to go through. It's always a possibility. Um, maybe there's a $1 billion breakup fee, um, but you know, in that case, yeah, the company probably leaves this whole situation fairly rattled um, and traumatized after what it's been through over the past few months.
2: So today on the show, Alex is gonna break it all down. Whether this fight with the world's richest man has left Twitter mortally injured, or whether, in the words of Monty Python, If you cast your mind back to March of this year, before Elon Musk launched his takeover bid, things at Twitter were going pretty well. In fact, Alex says they were better than usual.
1: They had finally gotten their revenue into a place where it was accelerating at a rate that made you really have faith in Twitter's business. In 2021, revenue was up 37% over 2020. And 2020 was a good year for online advertising, you'll recall. Users were growing well. They had just shaken off... This uh, activist investor challenge from Elliott Management, even though it basically led to the departure of Jack Dorsey, but in March 2022, you had to be feeling fairly good about the direction of the company if you were sitting inside Twitter.
2: Jack Dorsey steps down; Parag Agrawal is sort of installed as his successor. How did you see that move?
1: Well, I wrote about it immediately. And I said, basically, like, this may not be the right person hmm. you know, for Twitter. Um, obviously, the company was heading in the right direction. A lot of that progress happened under Dorsey. Pragagawal. Agarwal, uh, you know, there's no denying it. He's a technology guy, former CTO of the company. Not a whole lot of policy experience.
2: Not a high profile.
1: Not a high profile. The thing is, when you put your CTO in, you run a risk um, that you're going to end up in a pretty, you know, big... Uh, either political or business situation and someone without that experience, you don't know how they're going to navigate it. And it turns out that Twitter ended up in a business and political crisis with Elon coming in. The company at the end of the day, is is um, it's a political animal, right? right. It's a political slash media animal. It's not really a technology thing. I mean, if you were to go back and look at the Twitter experience, you know, five years ago, it's not very different from the experience today. And that's why I thought a CTO didn't make a lot of sense. And I think we're starting to see some of that come out right now, um, given the the situation that they're in.
2: I think one of the ironies is that right before Elon's offer, it felt like things were in a, a slightly more stable position for Twitter than they'd been in a while. I mean, you're, you're, you're right in pointing out they were actually making some money. They had introduced Twitter spaces. It It felt like maybe they were shaking off a a little of the stagnation. They'd removed Donald Trump from the platform and things felt maybe okay. It just seems like such a terrible irony that from that moment, everything has kind of unraveled and here we are.
1: I think that's just been the history of Twitter that, you know, moments of stability are generally the calm before the storm and not the calm after the storm. And that was obviously the case in this situation. Speaking to um, some Twitter executives over the past or former Twitter executives over the past couple of weeks, and one of the things that they said, and I found this pretty profound is that Twitter has functioned, you know, in spite of the chaos and maybe Hmm. the chaos is always part and part of the mix that no matter how crazy things get on the inside or the outside, you know, the product has just chugged on, Um, obviously never been a great business, but it's been vital to, you know, conversation in the U.S. and around the world And that hasn't changed, no matter how ridiculous things are inside the company. And I think we can see that right now, that, you know, Twitter, you know, just because Elon has caused this chaos inside the company, you know, there hasn't been a mass exodus inside Twitter. Um, The advertisers have backed away for a bit, but the product is as vital as ever.
2: To get out of the deal and its $44 billion price tag, Elon Musk is claiming that Twitter withheld information about the percentage of bots and fake accounts on the platform, Twitter has long maintained that that's under 5% of their active users and more or less called the bot issue a fig leaf. In its legal filings, the company pointed to Musk's months of tweeting nasty things about Twitter and said that Musk wanted an escape, but that the merger agreement left him little room.
1: I think the key point here is that Elon Musk did waive his, his due diligence uh, in the beginning, right to due diligence. He basically said, let's go ahead and sign this deal. And then they went and signed this deal. So the fact that he's trying to revisit this, you know, with the bot numbers, I think Twitter's lawyers have really rightly pointed out is, is ridiculous. Um, he's also, uh, you know, came in saying that he was there to solve the bot problem. And now he's like, there's a bot problem and I don't want the company. <laughs> that's, that's surprising. Um, and then finally, the bot number talks about monetizable daily active users. So basically it's an advertiser number. How many yeah. bots are being shown uh, to advertisers? And that's around five percent, but caveated like crazy in every SEC report. Um, and so like if Elon is trying to say, well, a lot of bots respond to my tweets, therefore there's probably more than five percent um, you know bots on the on the account. It's a question it's sort of beside the point. The question is how many of those bots do advertiser uh, messaging you know get shown to? And Twitter said less than five percent.
2: You tweeted, every lawyer I speak with says Elon will lose. Tell me about why.
1: Well, because it seems like the case is airtight against him. Um, He made the deal. He waived lots of due diligence. He put in seller-friendly terms. um, He lined up the financing. And he signed a deal with a specific performance clause that forces him to close it. And so you know, from the law, from a legal perspective, it seems like, yes, Elon has a very bad case. You know, this is not about truth anymore. It's really about process. The questions are, you know, does Twitter have the gut to take this all the way till the end um, and try to get a judge to enforce it? And B we've never seen a court enforce a specific performance provision that makes a company close a deal with someone who doesn't want to buy it um, anywhere close to this magnitude. So, um, oftentimes, these cases end up being about settling for damages, um, and so that's why I think that you know, ev- you know, even though the cards are stacked against Elon, um, we may end up seeing the court press for damages above all else, and that's where things get get really interesting. Because what is the number that you end up getting to if that's the case?
2: What is the number where Twitter will say, "Fine, that's enough money. Just give it to us and go away."
1: Exactly. If Elon had proposed to buy the company for forty-four billion dollars, you know he's he's obviously worked to undermine the brand. But then, as the economy has contracted, you've started to see peer companies, companies like Snapchat, actually have their value drop by fifty percent just due to market conditions. So it's possible for you know Elon's team to argue Twitter was going to end up falling anyway, and he shouldn't really be on the hook for too much. And Twitter might come right back and be like, every day that this has gone on, you've undermined our brand. Advertisers have come away. You haven't allowed us to build. And therefore, the damages should be extremely significant.
2: The merger agreement also had this this part that I think is really key here, where Elon Musk was not supposed to tweet nasty things about Mm -hmm. Twitter. But um, (laughs) he tweeted a poop emoji.
1: (laughs) Directly at the CEO after a very... Um, even keeled thread about the bot percentages on Twitter. Um, yeah, I think that one of the things that really stands out about the court filing is that Elon's tweets are littered um you know throughout, including that poop emoji tweet. And in some ways, as you read the case, it does look like you know Elon is in some ways his his um, his most aggressive prosecutor. He's the one that's making the damning case against himself as you read his words and you read his tweets. Court documents are usually boring, but with these very visual, you know, <laughs> tweets all throughout the case, um, it really does look like Elon is in some ways hanging himself here.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty good read.
1: Yeah, it's the, 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 the there have been a lot of comments recently about how um, lawyers that can write are in short supply, but Twitter clearly got the lawyers that can write because it seems like all the aggression that's been building up inside the company was just let out in one, you know, 66-page document. It's a thrill to go through it.
2: And if this were a suit against anyone else, it might be open and shut. But the world's richest man has a long history of ignoring what courts and regulators say. In 2018, he famously tweeted that he was taking Tesla private. It wasn't true. And the Securities and Exchange Commission charged him with securities fraud. They later settled, but that has never stopped Musk from tweeting mean things about the SEC. There's this this paragraph from the suit that I actually wanted to read to you. It says, Musk apparently believes that he, unlike every other party subject to Delaware contract law, is free to change his mind, trash the company, disrupt its operations, destroy stockholder value, and walk away. And on the one hand, you're right, Twitter's totally going to the mattresses. On the other hand, there is a very long history of Elon Musk not caring what the legal process is, not caring whether he's following the rules. And I wonder, are we just going to see him say yet again, like, yeah, the rules don't really apply to me.
1: Elon has definitely, um, especially with the SEC, made any regulator or legal entity look like a fool when dealing with him. We're looking with, with Elon, given the size of his wealth and the statements he makes, we're always in unprecedented territory. And I think the regulators have shown some good restraint because um, you know you you don't want to end up being in a situation where you're cracking down on u.s business all the time um, especially if it's not anti-competitive although you're you're supposed to protect um, shareholders and that's why i think this is really interesting and the language that you cite um, is is pretty fascinating you know i read that as a dare to the delaware courts to basically be like your instincts like the other regulators before you are going to tell you not to force this deal to go through. And what we're trying to say is legitimacy of your court and the legitimacy of U.S. law is going to be held up, you know, in this case in particular. And hmm. if you care about that, you'll find in our favor. And I thought that that was pretty interesting. It's not every day that you see that you know the lawyers effectively daring you know the court to enforce the law. Um, and I think they're going to have to basically persuade you know the Delaware courts to to um, you know to live up to what's written in the contract that they're meant to enforce.
2: The contract does have a potential $1 billion breakup fee, which Musk could maybe pay and exit the deal. That might be his best-case scenario. But getting more than that in the form of damages would be a pretty nice bump for a company facing a market downturn.
1: Even a $5 billion cash infusion would be extremely meaningful for Twitter's business and really give that company the ability to do things it hasn't been able to before. We're about to go through a big market downturn. $5 billion in cash— Okay, you know, you can, you can hire more effectively than your competitors. You can build more aggressively than your competitors. You can retain talent in ways that other other folks don't have and then hope that you can get back to that, you know, 54, 20 share price that Elon had offered. I mean, you know, we're definitely living in different market conditions now, but you know, we, we shouldn't forget the fact that Twitter was in the $70 range in the end of 2021, not even a year ago. So yeah. this idea that people are advancing, that they can never get back to 5420, to me, um, is bizarre.
2: Since April, when Musk made his takeover bid, Twitter has had a hiring freeze and a lot of internal turmoil, including the firings of two top executives. Alex says it's all taken a toll on the company's leadership and its workforce.
1: Parag is doing his best at like trying to keep the uh, company stable, but everybody knows that he's kind of working towards his buyout package that he'd get if the deal closed and then he's going to bounce. It's extremely difficult to keep company morale uh, stable in a way like this. I mean, if you think about it, you're trying to tell employees, you know, keep doing the projects you're doing and stay the course and don't talk to anyone. Um, So we can complete this deal, which is all about, you know, selling to a person who doesn't want you to keep working on the projects (laughs) you're doing and, and everything is going to be okay. We just don't know exactly the way it's going to work. And that's why I think you've seen, I mean, you've seen uh, Twitter hasn't articulated any vision for the product recently. Um, The most, uh, you know, uh, impactful, you could say product tweet that they've shipped or new feature they've shipped is what I think is the most confusing uh, social media feature of all time, which is co-tweets, which allows people to tweet along with someone else. Like if that's what your product uh, organization is shipping, you really don't have any hope. Um, but I do think that this is just kind of a moment in time where everybody inside Twitter knows that not much is going to happen. Um, the ad sales team, how do you go to an ad, ad client and be like, listen, you know, spend a million dollars with us. We have no idea what's happening with this company. It's a very tough pitch. So, you know, same thing, trying to trying to ship products. So it's limbo land inside that company until this is resolved.
2: Does Parag have the confidence of the workforce?
1: No, no. Um, but, you know, that's that's this is sort of the thing that the board is betting on. It's basically saying it doesn't matter what the workers think at this point, we're going to try to get the best element we can for shareholders. And it's this really interesting tension between, like, Twitter the product and Twitter the company. They're right now putting the interests of Twitter the company ahead of Twitter the product and Twitter's workforce. Um, and their bet is that that's going to end up, you know, in a much better situation, you know, overall for the shareholders. But, it really is employees be damned at this point inside Twitter.
2: they're also betting clearly that that users are just going to keep using Twitter no matter what,
1: and they're they're probably right. Um, I have some data from Apptopia that shows that actually Twitter has had uh, its highest download day ever um, after Elon, you know, decided that he wanted to make this deal. They've also had their lowest download day ever. So read into that what you will. But I'll just take the average and say, you know, it seems pretty clear that usage has been fairly consistent.
2: One question I have about the workforce is presumably a lot of their compensation is in stock options. Their stock is not in the best of shape now, although it's not terrible. Um, Is that what is keeping them sticking around? Or is it the idea that like, hey, maybe the economy is not heading into a great place. So why don't I just hang on to my job?
1: This downturn has been the biggest gift. To Twitter uh, in terms of hmm. employee retention, I think if we were in hotter times, um, all these employees would be out the door with better compensation packages at other companies. But we're in a moment now where we're seeing hiring freezes. Every company from Meta to Google um, is slowing down their their hiring goals, you know, for at least the second half. You know, probably longer. Um, stock options, you know, inside startups don't really seem as appealing as they used to. And so there and and all these employees came into Twitter and were fairly mission driven, you know, and as far as, you know, there's still a chance they'll be able to see their mission again, you know, with a cash infusion from a settlement, you know, from from Elon. So uh, so I do think that, yeah, if there wasn't this economic downturn, we might be seeing far more exits um, than we have already. Um, Although I don't you know, I don't think that, you know, we're not going to see a wave of exits, but it's definitely slower.
2: How much damage do you think has been done to Twitter in the past few months?
1: Well, it's a a great question because you have to think about like, again, like people are using this product no matter what the heck is happening inside the company, no matter who owns it. Um, It it plays this vital role and really is the beating heart of the internet. You know, I know uh, Prague has gone out and said that their business goals aren't being met, but I think that's reversible. I also know that we are seeing, you know, advertising uh, uh, downturns, you know, across the economy. So you could argue that it's like a, a fairly negligible impact um, <laughs> if you're on Elon's team, because again, you have to think about the reputation of Twitter coming in, and it was a disaster coming in. It, it was a company that just had no idea where which direction it was going in. You know, it had policies that were very unpopular among large swaths of the comp of the country. Um, its business was improving, okay, but like it, it wasn't Facebook, so. It's not like it's not like Elon came in and and did this to Apple or to a different luxury brand. You know, he did it to to the clown car um, of Twitter. And that plays in heavily in terms of what you're thinking about when it comes to damages,
2: yeah. I mean, for years, really, the the strongest thing that Twitter has had going for it is that it punched above its weight, right? Mm-hmm. Like it it's nowhere near the size of Facebook, but politicians, celebrities, people want to be on it because they, they can talk to one another. And I sort of wonder if we're seeing the revenge of that, right? Like, if if your thing is the big shiny user, you are kind of at the whims of the big shiny user.
1: And and so yeah, I think that the users will will stick with the product. Now the question comes: Okay, what about shareholders? Because they're often left out in this conversation. There are lots of people that bought Twitter stock, um, you know, expecting it to hit that fifty-four twenty. There's and you know they are uh, they're now. Uh, underwater, um, or at least way below, you know where they expect it to be.
2: As we're talking, I'm just checking; it's trading at about thirty six twenty.
1: Right, and that's a nice bump um, from from where it was earlier in the week, uh, because um, after this Twitter lawsuit has come out, uh, people are now long Twitter again. There are so many interesting stakeholders here. There's Elon. There's the you know the board itself. There's shareholders, and there are the employees. And I think when you when you try to assess what's going to happen here. Um, the interests of shareholders are are going to be number one. Um, and that's why Twitter, you know, knows that it probably won't take a hit in users. And if that's going to be the case, then what do you have to lose trying to get the most you can from shareholders?
2: You had this phrase that I thought was really smart. You referred to Twitter as an anger video game, mm-hmm. where like you win the game with likes and retweets and dunking on people. And it it is really satisfying in the moment but like, is that a is that a recipe for long term growth of a product?
1: Right, I got that from uh, Maggie Haberman, who was talking about like what it was like, um, you know, as someone with a large account in the middle of the, the Trump The New York Times years. reporter. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's tough to say. I, I think that that a lot of people have been driven out from Twitter because of the um, the outrage and the bullying and the trolling. I mean you say the sky is blue on, on Twitter and you're going to get like 17 people in your mentions saying, actually, you know, it's a refraction of the, of the ocean and the sky is colorless. You dumbass.
2: <laughs> um,
1: fair enough. Uh, but it, it is a largely unpleasant place to be. Um, that said, those of us that are um, addicted to it, and I'll put myself in that category, know that there's no more vital stream, you know, of information there. So and it's also it's almost like the mechanisms that make it so useful are also the mechanisms that make it so terrible. I've written a lot about the retweet button, and um, the retweet is what gets you information and, and interesting stuff is, you know quickly, quicker than any other sources. Otherwise, you would be typing you know blog URLs in to to find it. And the retweet can you know take interesting jokes and thoughts and ideas and bring them to lots of people right away. But it can also be weaponized. It also encourages outrage and um, you know. Uh, uh, people who are trying to play to folks' identities and try to turn them against each other. and it's t- turns into like really nasty things. So it is this sort of you know we're we're looking at a Twitter with lots of different paradoxes, right? Um, one that's useful but also you know a horrible place in many ways. and then yeah one who's whose product might be sacrificed in the name of its of its business. So it's kind of a fascinating company to watch at, at all times.
2: I asked Alex if after all this chaos, Twitter can write the ship. But I'm not even sure that's the right question. It's more like, can Twitter figure out what its identity really is or what its future should look like?
1: Well, it's it's going to be interesting because if if Elon ends up owning them, it's a little bit different than um, if it stays, if it gets a settlement from him. I don't really see the future of Twitter changing very much. And I think the messiness of twi- Twitter, I've learned to believe that it's, you know, the messiness meaning you know, sort of like the the chaos of the product, um, is is in some ways a feature because the situation that needs to exist, the scenarios that need to exist to be able to get this information, you know, are never going to be neat and tidy. Um, it's a platform that essentially takes away all the gatekeepers of information that we've had in the past, and you know f- it, that can lead to lots of really terrible outcomes, but it also leads to thrilling outcomes. So. You know, what would Twitter do to change that? Um, I don't know. Twitter at a certain point said, okay, we're not Facebook. We are what we are. And we're not going to change that. And that's when they really went hard into news and like moved away from celebrity and lifestyle content. When the company recognizes what it is and doesn't try to be anything else, you know, that's when it's at its best. That's when it has a chance to, you know, take you know, take uh, measures to... Um, to mitigate the downsides and also build products to accentuate the positives. When Twitter knows what it is, Twitter's at its best. When Twitter tries to be Facebook or some or TikTok or something else, that's when it falters.
2: Alex Kantrowitz, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Lizzie. Great being with you.
2: Alex Kantrowitz is the host of the Big Technology Podcast, and he writes the newsletter, Big Technology. All right, that is it for the show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.